Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Tiferet Talk. I'm Melissa Studdard and this is the Blog Talk Radio Show for Tiferet Journal of Spiritual Literature where we publish writings and engage in dialogue to promote peace in the individual and in the world. We're thrilled that you're with us right now, and we would love for you to also join our global online community. You can find it at www.tiferetjournal.com. There, in addition to interacting with other members, reading their writings, and posting your own, you can subscribe to the journal, which in each issue presents beautiful, spiritually and intellectually compelling poetry, prose, and art. This evening's guest is renowned poet and critic Alfred Korn, with whom I'll be discussing Tables, his most recent collection of poetry, among other things literary and spiritual. Korn is a frequent reviewer for the New York Times Book Review and The Nation, and in addition to poetry, has published a novel, critical essays, a prosody manual, a book of art criticism, and a proof translation. Korn, whose poetry has been widely anthologized, has been a recipient of the Levinson Prize from Poetry Magazine, an award in literature from the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters, and fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Academy of American Poets, and the Rockefeller Study and Conference Center at Bellagio, Italy. As well, he received the Amy Clampett Residency in 2004. Of Korn's poetry, Carolyn Forche of the Lambda Book Report says, Korn's formal range is everywhere apparent. He even attempts sapphics in English, which closely resemble what might be accomplished in Greek. But as he understands art to be always more than technical virtuosity, his poetry never merely displays his considerable poetic skills, but rather becomes a mode of thought, an inquiry into art and passion, the limits of mastery, mortality, divinity, and the possible destiny of the human soul. Alfred, hello. Hello, Melissa. How are you? I'm doing very well. I, I'm sure, as you know, from talking to our producer, we're so excited to have you here today. <laughs> it's a pleasure How to be here. I'm just sitting, doing well. I'm sitting in my living room. There's brilliant sunlight coming in from the southern window, and I'm having my fifth cup of coffee today and ready to talk. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I wish I could have coffee, but I'm allergic to caffeine. So. <laughs> oh, really? I'll, I'll live vicariously through you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, let's go ahead and start with the title. I, I was just delighted with the title of the collection being Table because, um, you know, Table is such an ordinary thing, something that we mostly take for granted, yet it's so central to the communal spirit that you evoke with the poems. And I wanted to see if maybe you could talk a little bit about what Table symbolizes for you in the collection. Sure. Uh, I just when I was looking over the poems that were written uh, over the past decade, I noticed that the word tables appeared in a number of them in different different contexts uh, and sometimes with different meanings. And do you notice how it's very common now today 
to hear people say in, in news broadcasts or so forth, some, someone is bringing this to the table or they're, they're bringing that to the table. And it's become, right. I think, one of the central metaphors of communication in our time when people gather to bring some sort of offering or some sort of idea uh, together to discuss. And so that's, that's really the origin of the title. Wow, that's wonderful. And so I, I was actually kind of wondering about that because it's, it's definitely a motif through the entire collection. It, it, not so much a theme, but a motif. And um, I was wondering if it had naturally occurred like that. So that's interesting that you noticed it kind of after the fact. Um, because I think a lot of people today try to write collections that have a unified theme, like intentionally. Um, and it's interesting that that just happened naturally for you like that. It did. I didn't plan writing on that theme. I just noticed that it was something that recurred, and that must be because tables recur in my life so regularly, and again, in different contexts. Um, even, I know that Deferred is concerned with the spiritual. If you think about mm -hmm. it, uh, an altar in a religious edifice is a kind of table, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, that's another context. It's wonderful that you bring that up, too, because I was thinking that in so many ways the collection is about the many kinds of nourishment that we receive that ultimately becomes spiritual, um, whether it's from food or family or literature or even you've got poems about sports that are, are like spiritually nourishing, <laughs> right? Well, I would hope so. Um, you know, we live in a universe that is largely metaphorical, and we speak of, of works of art as nourishing us. So if that's, if that's an accurate metaphor, if that describes well what happens when we enter in communion with a work of art, why not use the metaphor of a table? Anyway, that was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful, and I do like the way um, it, it does take on different meanings. Um, would you read us a poem from the collection? And I was actually kind of thinking about the poem football because of what I just said about sports. I'd like for the listeners to be able to hear what I mean about how that um, becomes, how the game becomes a vehicle for spiritual union. Uh, which poem did you say? Yeah, it's, I'm not sure if I'm saying it properly because it's uh, European the way you have it spelled, but football, it's on page 53. Right, football. That's Spanish, uh, football, and football in Spanish doesn't mean American football. It's really their word for soccer, which is also used in Britain, by the way. So if you're in Britain yeah. and you want to talk about soccer, you have to say America, uh, you have to say football, and then if you don't want to talk about our football, you have to say American football. Uh, I don't like the sound of the word soccer, <laughs> so I didn't want to use it. I didn't want to use it for the poem. Uh, I think it doesn't sound good. So I just used the Spanish word, football. But I am talking about the game that we all know. Um, right. So that's, that's it. Shall I read it? I would love for you to. I'm going to then. Football. As if to move a flexible sphere from here to there with unassisted head and foot were natural and obvious. As if a dance could always bow to resolute constraint and never be danced the same way twice. As if whistles and cheers, the hullabaloo of fervent gazers, were all the music needed to keep its players' goals in tune. So that, as they weave, dodge, collide, collapse in breathless haystacks, and rise and fall and rise again, 
we're made, if not one, then at least whole. Wow. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> and I love the way you read it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Thank the you. way you set up with weave done. And I love the image of the, the breathless haystack. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's marvelous. What was your, insp- I mean, other than the obvious, was there a specific game or a specific inspiration for the poem? Uh, this was written more than 10 years ago, so it's a little vague to me now how I got started. I guess it was just watching uh, a soccer game and thinking that it had choreographic qualities. And mm-hmm. it's so, so fascinating to me that in that game, you can't use your arms um, you know, to, to move the ball around the field. You have to just use your head, your feet, um, and sometimes your chest to you know, to move the ball. And that, that constraint that I mentioned in the poem, that's interesting to me that you, you would do without, you know, the ordinary limbs that would be used for moving things and still manage to produce this choreographic uh, display. So that, that was what I wanted to explore in it. Well, I think it's wonderful. And I, as I read it on the page and then heard you read it aloud, I was thinking, well, you know, this is what it means to be a poet. I think you can look at something like a football game and it's not a football game it's this i mean it is but it's also this transcendent transcendent amazing thing you know it goes from a game to a dance to spiritual union <laughs> it's wonderful um, well is that something strange happens in large crowds that are witnessing an event that they are very intent on you know participating in some strange extra dimension comes into the crowd so that even though they remain separate human beings, there's this sort of um, unity that, mm. that comes into play, and that fascinates me. It is fascinating. Um, speaking of the communal spirit, one aspect of the collection that I really enjoyed was your use of the epistle or the poem written as a letter. And yes. um, I, I just love that. Um, can you talk a little bit about your choice to include several epistles in the collection? Um, let me think about that. Well, you know, it's a, it's a very time-honored thing to write a poem as a letter. It seems mm-hmm. to start with uh, Ovid in, in Roman literature and Horace. And they did, both did probably the supreme examples of the letter poem. But uh, in the English Renaissance, they began doing it again. And all of those examples uh, have mattered to me. In contemporary poetry, we have um, Marilyn Hacker, who is one of the recipients of the letters, you know, letter poems in the book. She has written numbers of them. And Richard Hugo uh, had a whole book of them. So I'm the kind of person that likes to try a lot of different things. And I realized I had never written a letter poem. So I set out to do that. And so there, there were three results that were put in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really neat, and I like the way it fits with the rest of the context of the book because it feels, the whole collection just feels so communal to me, and um, just from the content of the specific poems and, and the way the poems all work together and the idea of tables, um, and I, I think it's neat because I think a lot of people have the idea of a writer as a loner or even a, even maybe a misanthrope kind of hunched over a desk alone in the wee hours of the night just 
typing away with bad health, no relationships. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but to read your work is to really discover exactly the opposite. It's, you know, literary dialogue, important friendships, um, conversation that feeds poetry and communal appreciation of art and culture. Um, and I, I just think it's really it's unique. It's something that's unique to your work that I really like. And I know you're saying there's a long-standing tradition of it, but um, I just don't feel like we see it as much these days, and I really like it. So. Well, thanks, Melissa. You know, we do have to be alone to write, um, but one way of making that process less lonely is, is to write a poem directed at one person that you know and care about so that you feel in communion with them, even though they're not right there. Um, and I think your sense of that person shapes what you say. I mean, if you look at letters, if you keep copies of letters you've written, you look at them, you realize that the letters you write to A have a different tone or range from the letters you write to B. And it, it is a way of producing variety. If you really have someone specific in mind, it will shape how the poem develops. And so each of the letter poems is slightly different from the others. Well, and I know your letter to Marilyn Hacker. Um, I'm trying to remember how you wrote it. You wrote it in, didn't you write it in hexameter? Well, uh, it's an approximation of a classical measure, uh, classical hexameters, uh, which have six, six metrical feet per line. And um, I had never attempted to do that um, in English well, because, you know, we have a sort of different metrical system in the English language. But Marilyn herself is so skilled at uh, writing poems in verse forms and unusual meters that I thought, if I'm going to write a letter to her, it's got to have that aspect. So I tried <laughs> to give an English equivalent of Latin hexameters as I wrote the, wrote the lines of the poem. You know, um, one thing that I was thinking over and over as I was reading the collection is that your knowledge and experiences are so vast and varied. I mean, it's really a little intimidating to me to talk to you, like even if it wasn't a live interview and we were talking on the phone, you know, just the two of us, I would be kind of nervous because you just know so much. And yet your poems remain so accessible to people who do not share your knowledge. I never felt like oh, I don't understand this, or I don't know what's going on. And I was wondering, do you make a conscious effort to keep your poems accessible? I mean, how, how do you do that? How do you have all of that knowledge and yet write in a way that people can actually understand you? <laughs> you know, that question uh, corresponds with something I was thinking of the other day, um, that there's a kind of continuum, a spectrum, running from one end to the other in contemporary poetry, where at one end of the spectrum you have very, very simple, accessible poems, and at the other end, other end you have very difficult, complex, elusive, elaborate uh, poems. And I think that we, all of us contemporary poets, pick a place on that spectrum where we, are, where we want to be, mm. in between at one end simplicity and at the other end extraordinary complexity. And we pick a, uh, an area where we think that's about the right way to pitch it. And my guess is that everybody picks a slightly different point on that spectrum. And they think, well, that person's too complex, or that person's too simplistic. 
So you just have to, you know, kind of go on your nerve and say, this is where I belong, this is where I'm comfortable, and you hope that other people will think that's about the way to pitch it to. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I, I think I'm fair in saying that there are poets who are much thornier, more difficult, more, you know, complex than mine. And by the same mm-hmm. token, they're poets who are, are simpler, more accessible than, than my poems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. You're so somewhere in the median range, that's where I try to be. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, and I feel like, you know, if something comes up ever in a poem that I feel like, oh, I, I kind of might not know exactly what that means, there's usually a footnote or some kind of explanation. So, you know, I never feel alienated from anything, and I like that. Um, well, I did um, in in the book tables put at the end um, an appendix sort of thing with notes on the poems um, to save people time. I mean, and I know you can go to Wikipedia and look it all up, but this I thought this will save them a few steps if they don't quite catch that reference. Look at the notes at the end, and you know it, it will explain it pretty well. I think. Right, it's an incredibly considerate thing to do. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. Um, this. This is kind of hard to articulate, but um, your your recent work feels obviously polished and well-crafted, but at the same time, it feels authentic and even a little exposed like in a really great way. And um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that whatever else is going on stylistically or technically, it seems like authenticity trumps all for you and um, that may it may seem easy but in fact I think it may be the most difficult thing to accomplish in poetry and even the thing that takes the most courage I think so my question is well how do you do that how do you stay present with the true pulse of the poem like that oh let's see Um, well when you talk about um, you know self-disclosure I know that in some quarters of the audience, any any personal discussion about your life, your experience, uh, the things you've gone through, is regarded as the term they use is confessional, that you're confessing something. Mm. I don't um, I don't see it that way. Um, I mean, obviously, in some religions, confession is a sacrament and something you do with a priest. So when I'm writing, I'm not participating in a religious ritual of confession. But I am talking about the things that concern me and concern mm. me deeply. Um, and I think if a poem does not have at least a grain of that, if the poem doesn't show that the author is grappling with something that they want to reach some kind of resolution with, something goes out of it. I mean, there can be some very you know, attractive, well-phrased, um, uh, pleasing poems, and you will think, well, this is certainly well done. But if that grain of personal struggle is missing from it, I don't respond to it as profoundly as I do to other kinds of poems, which seem more personal, more engaged in the author's life. Interesting. And um, this kind of reminds me of um, your discussion in in Set of Poetics. Um, You talked about um, trying to remember exactly what the discussion was, but it it was sort of you putting in your two cents and and actually adding to that old discussion about instruction versus delight. Um, yes. Do you remember yes. what you said? 
you were talking about you were you were sort of expanding on what Dryden said. Right. Um, it was first said by Horace, and of course, you know, Dryden was a translator of Horace. Horace said that poets wish either to delight or to instruct. Um, and I think that's really, that he really put his finger on it. That's what it's about. Uh, works of art have to give pleasure. There's really no pleasure in them. Mm. We don't enjoy it. We don't uh, get much out of it. But by the same token, if there's no the word I've used is instruction, but that, that might not give the idea I mean. If there's nothing to learn from the mm-hmm. poem, if it's just a series of pleasant things, then I think there's something missing. So you have mm-hmm. to have both of those things. You have to have pleasure, and you have to have some kind of learning experience that the poem embodies, or so I think. Mm-hmm. No, I agree, totally. Mm. Um, would you read another poem? Um, I was thinking of Sanitario uh, Recoleta. Oh, you know, I didn't uh, plan to read that one today, so I'm not sure I have a copy. I'll have to go to my computer. Do you, do you want to wait <laughs> until I do that? <laughs> uh, you know, actually, I would love to hear anything that you want to read, and if you feel like pulling that up while we're talking, that's great, or if you'd prefer to read something else, that's fine. I just... Um, I became curious about this poem. Is it part of, I mean, it's not in um, tables. Is it part of something new that you're working on? It, it is. There's a new book coming out. Uh, I think we've tentatively scheduled it for March or April. And uh, the title of it will be Unions, and Barrow Street Editions will be bringing it out. And it does have the poem I sent you called Cementario Recoleta. Um, so I can look for it if you, or in the meantime, oh, I can read another one that I have on hand. That, that was, well, you know, can you look while we talk, or would that be too sure, distracting? Sure, sure. <laughs> okay, good. I well, um, we'll just keep talking, and when you find it, let me know, and if it becomes too distracting for you to look, then we can read something else. But I, I really, really love the poem. So, um, Did you? you can yeah, oh yeah, I loved it. And um, I think because it's in the new collection, it would just be nice to have a taste of what's coming with that. <laughs> so Absolutely. Um, well, here I am. It's coming up on the screen. <laughs> oh, yay! <laughs> okay, Wonderful. well, the, the setting is Buenos Aires. I was just curious, if, have you been there? I have not, um, but mm-hmm. I had the impression from some interviews that I read that you had lived there for a time. I did. Um, I spent two months there. Uh, let's see, it's nearly three years ago. Um, there were many reasons I wanted to go. One was to spend some time with my friend Sam Hamill, who was my publisher when the previous book, Contradictions, came out. He and his wife, Gray, were there. Uh, I had always been curious about it ever since I'd read the work of Jorge Luis Borges, uh, mm. who was an Argentinian and also from Buenos Aires. They call people from Buenos Aires porteños. Um, mm. So I wanted to go there and sort of see the world that, that shaped him. And as I did that, uh, going around different parts of town, I came to the Recoleta Cemetery, which is the title of the poem you're talking about, Cementario Recoleta. He, um, in his very first book of poems, he has a poem called Recoleta, and he wanders around this very famous cemetery. It's where all the rich and famous people of Buenos Aires are buried. 
And he says, this will be the place where my ashes rest. And his phrase mm-hmm. for it was, luego uh, de mis cenizas. So that was in my mind when I made a visit to the cemetery. And I admit it's a bit pretentious or something for me to write a poem about the cemetery that Borges wrote about. But it was his very first book. <laughs> I thought there might be something left to say. And part of that, left, what's left to say is thinking about him and his thoughts about uh, that very same place. So I have it, and I can read oh, it wonderful. if you like. I, I would love, love, love it. <laughs> okay, here goes. Cementario Recoleta, Buenos Aires. Stasis at noonday, carnival, past anchored palms near the entrance, a living statue in red-embroidered cloth-of-gold robes and hat, the stolid, sweating face, a grease-paint icon, parasol unfurled against carcinogenic light. His wooden begging bowl takes the dropped coin, admission to a shadowland inside whose gate each new arrival scans a map to ground the mute dream kingdom's myth and keep it real. Mute? No. Dead. In vaults hermetically sealed, lined up like ranks of books, awaiting their great critic. Lugar de mi sinisa. In fact, a false prediction. He's not here, in some marble palace with Greek columns and bridal angels. Not here, among gray obelisks, and patronyms that also name the Centro's broad avenues, Sainz Peña, Sarmiento, Lavage. How would you choose to end? A shrine or road? A granite Bozar pavilion or a capital's frenetic polluted throughway? Cool, unruffled by the question, veteran arbor vitae branches breathe and nod liquefying shade on this stone bench. Be seated, released from gravity and able to unburden at a crossroads in the garden of forking paths where birth and death dates tie their knot as to remind us living statues we never can know where or when the golden eulogies will rain down on us like bombfuls of earth. Wow. <laughs> I, that was like, listening to that was like a meditation. I was so completely absorbed in it, I forgot everything else that existed. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I love the, uh, the reference to the Garden of the Forking Cats. <laughs> oh, you got That's, that. Oh, you're very well read, uh, Melissa. <laughs> oh, well, Borges is one of my favorites. <laughs> is he? Oh, oh let's join a club. <laughs> <laughs> right, thank you. Well, also, this um, I was just completely taken with this, you know, God is the great critic, this whole thing about <laughs> dead and vaults, and they're lined up like ranks of books awaiting their great critic, because I, I just, you know, it's funny to think of, you know, that as an analogy for God, <laughs> but also... You know, it says something funny about critics, too. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> the last judgment. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. the sheep to one side, the goats to the other. <laughs> Very funny. Um, and I love, love, love the last stanza too. It's just so beautiful about the golden eulogies raining down on us like palmfuls of earth. It's just kind of a magical ending. So thank you for that. Thank you. I guess my the question about which would you rather end up having your name attached to, um, you know, a, a tomb or a street uh, would be a bench for me. And you know, oh, lots of benches are commemorative. You know, they have people's names in memory of somewhere comfortable to sit uh, so that the living can come and visit and over the years, thousands and thousands. Yeah, that's great. I love that. And, I, and of course, there is <laughs> <laughs> the image of the bench with the liquefying shade. What a great, great image that is. This, this whole poem is just rich with imagery, which is one of the reasons I think I like it so much, other than what it says, of course. Thank um, you, Melissa. That's why we write. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Facebook, if you don't mind, because I've been following you on there for a while. Uh, I mean, we're friends on Facebook, but I've been paying a lot of attention to your updates. And your updates are like many blog posts, really, and they engage people in real conversation about important topics, and they're so beautifully written. Um, There was one that caught my eye earlier this month, and it was part of a series. And I wanted to see if it's okay if I just read it back to you and ask you to elaborate on the context of it and the discussion that you started, if if you remember. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we owe our friendship, Melissa, to Facebook. I actually didn't know of you until we met there. I know. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so I'm going to read this to you. And then the mystics, the visionaries, travelers of inner space, whose minds expand to the edge of the universe and beyond, sensing the unity of all being, the large self as opposed to the small self, the illusory character of all we see. Mystics from several different traditions will always understand each other and be better understood than by non-mystics in their own religious traditions, partly because the supreme vision is non-sectarian and inexpressible. Attempting to speak of it, they don't make sense, not in ordinary terms. In their faces, you will see the half-smile of Gnosis, Gnosis and the 10,000-mile gaze weave a circle around them thrice. And that, that is like a poem to me. It's so beautiful. Uh, as soon as I <laughs> well, maybe it, I should I, save I'll, that, Melissa. <laughs> well, I think you should. And that entire series that you were writing, I think, could be a series of poems or a really long poem in different parts. Um, but, I mean, it's just beautiful. Weave a circle around them thrice. Gorgeous. Well, that's a reference um, to Coleridge's poem, you know, Kublai Khan. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's so. a beautiful poem, too. <laughs> <laughs> but um, would you talk a little bit about this series of posts that you made? Well, I don't know what, what prompted it, but one day I was just thinking that if you look at um, how people write about religion or their participation in it in several different traditions, you do see certain human types recur. Um, it's as though the human types precede, in some sense, the religions themselves. <coughs> so I uh, tried to analyze, well, what types do I see? And so there were the legalists who were concerned about law and infractions thereof. And then there were the ritualists who were concerned about liturgy and how the ritual is conducted 
and that's the most important thing to them. And then there are the communitarians who are concerned with uh, promoting the community, the sharing of love amongst each other, and uh, doing deeds of, of charity and kindness in the community. And then there were the um, innovators who want to change everything, and you know they're tired of the same boring old rituals and so forth, and so they bring in innovations like guitars, etc. And finally, the mystics, um, which are concerned with, um, it's hard to describe what it is they're concerned with because it's wordless, um, a universal perception of what being is and our place in that. So that, that was it. Those were the types I came up with. And other people would come up with other types, but that's what I came up with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really neat. I, I really love the way you, you do Facebook. I mean, you keep it <laughs> very real and very deep, and it, it doesn't ever become surface on your page. So I really like that. <laughs> Thank you. The interesting conversation there. <laughs> um, well, this is this is kind of a big question, so <laughs> but I'm curious, just thinking about it. I, I know as a critic that you're not just interested in your own poetry, obviously, or poetry that you like to read for personal pleasure, but you're also concerned with the state of poetry as a whole. And I just wanted to see how you would describe the current state of poetry and if you're feeling really brave, uh, your place within it. <laughs> well, the thing about Contemporary poetry uh, in English languages, it's vast. Um, even just the United States, it's vast. And so many books are published, new books are published every year, probably a thousand or more. But my sense is that no one could read that many because it's like reading three books of poetry a day. And of course, mm. a book of poems, if they're good poems, requires very careful rereading. So my guess is that no one really knows what's going on in contemporary poetry. We all make guesses. We read a percentage of those new books. And, of course, we've been doing that. Well, I've been on the scene since the early 70s. So we'll have our guesses about what contemporary poetry is, but no one really knows. And I think that's a a little bit unsettling. We really (laughs) don't know what's going on out there. (laughs) Well, it is. That's why I'm saying, can you tell me? Can you... (laughs) Can you give us an It would answer? just be my guess. You know, it would just be my right. guess. Uh, right. And other people would say, oh, no, no, you're completely wrong. You don't know about so-and-so and so-and-so. And <laughs> so we could just debate it. And actually, we, since we're on the topic of Facebook, I think it's useful because you do get uh, points of view from a lot of different corners. And mm-hmm. that helps um, modify, shape, or change the direction of our appraisal of what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. I do think that there is now a waning of of what seemed to be all the all the rage a couple of decades ago, and that's the the experimental, wild, postmodern end of things. I think that's begun to wane. But poetry kind of goes through phases of that. I mean, if you look at the 1920s, it was all the rage then, and some very good things were produced then. Uh, then it goes in the other direction. It goes towards plainness and accessibility. And I think that we're sort of moving in that direction again. But I could be wrong. Ask somebody else to say something different. <laughs> well, no, no, it feels that way to me too. Um, and does I'm it? Kind of, oh, it? It does. It really feels that way. And I was kind of hoping that you would say that and see it too. <laughs> Validate. So okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it just feels like there is a real movement um, towards um, 
just wanting to communicate and be understood more so yep. than wanting to play and experiment. So yep. We'll see what happens. I, I, we'll see. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think postmodernism, if we'll just use that blanket term, which covers a lot of things, had a good run for about 40 years. And that's a long time for an artistic movement, really, if you look at the hist- history of literature. So it had a good run, and, you know, some things emerge from it that people will continue to want to read. And then a lot of it will go the way of most literature. It will just be forgotten. Um, but I think we need something new now, and for lack of a better term, I say that we're in the millennial period. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Millennial period. Yeah. That's good. Well, um, you mentioned in the essay instead of poetics that as you matured as a poet you knew from merely trying to find the verbal equivalent for sensory experience to being more inclined to present that vision visual information metaphorically. Um, would you tell us a bit about the transformation? Also, what else you've noticed about your own poetic evolution? Well, uh, a fish in the ocean doesn't know how salty the water is. So I may not know, I may not be the best person to judge exactly who I am uh, as a writer and and what I'm doing. Um, I try to get a handle on it because, you know, Mm. that way I'm just not sort of flailing around in the darkness. Um, I think that my work arose out of uh, work that began, say, the 1950s with poets like um, Robert Lowell and Elizabeth Bishop, who incorporated uh, facts about their own lives into their work, although they would change them for the sake of the poem. Uh, That's where I began. And uh, my first mentor as a poet was a man, not a poet, a critic and and teacher of literature named David Calstone. And some people have heard of him because of a book he wrote called Becoming a Poet, and it was his study of uh, Elizabeth Bishop's evolution as a poet. And David's view was that the most interesting poetry of the time was autobiographical poetry, uh, Mm -hmm. which other people call confessional. So that's where I began. And um, I also always wanted to write fiction and have, have published fiction, so mm-hmm. the yeah. narrative component, yeah, uh, the narrative component of poems was important to me. The poems could, many of them, be regarded as short stories um, written in lines. So that's mm-hmm. sort of the matrix that I came out of. But as, as I right. said earlier when we were talking, um, I seem to like to keep trying different things. And so as time has passed, I've tried other approaches to poetry and uh you know, the work has evolved. And the visual component was very important to me in the beginning, partly because if you're going to do narrative, you have to represent the visual world. Later on, I decided that I didn't know enough about the sound aspect of poetry. So I began to study meter and rhyme and verse form, and even, as you mentioned, published a book about that, um, mm-hmm. the musical side of poetry, if you will. So those mm-hmm. are the the main shifts of, of, of emphasis for me from narrative and visual to something more musical, not necessarily uh, based on my own life. Well, and you know, the thing that's interesting is you don't, you don't use, you don't lose what you learned. You know, it accumulates research to be able to work all of that stuff together over time. It's great. Well, I hope <laughs> not to. I hope not to. You know, you build on what you have and, you know, so... 
Right, exactly. And you actually have a play as well, um, Lowell Bedlam. Um, about That's right, Robert. I do. Yeah, and Based I, I on Robert Lowell, yeah. Uh, it was op- it opened in London actually, not over here, um, back um, in 2011. And um, I have looked for productions over here, but since I'm not in the theater world, I haven't had any success in finding production. But I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> well, I it's about Lowell know. when he was admitted to um, Payne Whitney uh, Mental Hospital in New York City when he had his first uh, attacks of manic depressive illness. You know, um, I read news of it online, and the reviews were amazing. Um, one of the Stevens uh, even said that there was the York portrait of Robert Lowell was actually more compelling than what was found in the biography or the poetry itself. <laughs> I thought, wow, <laughs> that's what <quite> they <laughs> Well, so, they had the uh, assistance of an actor to embody him. Such a biography <laughs> right. can't do. <laughs> so, well, it's yeah. very modest of you, <laughs> but I do hope it's produced over here as well. Um, we only have just minutes left, so um, I know you have another lecture coming out. Would you remind us again what the title of that is? It's called Unions, and that should be okay. out in March or April. Okay, so unions out in March or April and tables, which we've heard a poem from and talked about. Um, is there anything else going on or a website or readings coming up or anything you'd like to let our listeners know about before we close? Oh, okay. Uh, there, there is a website uh, for me. Uh, if you go to alfredcorn.org, there's a website. And join us on Facebook, folks. Melissa and I are there. We have interesting conversations. And uh, let's see, events coming up. I'm going to England, end of November, and then from there to um, Switzerland, to the University of Fribourg. I'm giving a, a, a talk there and a reading. Um, so those are events. And I'll come back to the States in March to, you know, to launch the new book. So that's sort of the next few months for me. Well, great. It's been such a with you. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Melissa. Thank you. Okay. Um, Bye-bye. Bye. Before we close, I'd like to let our listeners know that you can subscribe, donate, or purchase single issues of The Ferret Journal at our website, www.theferretjournal.com. While you're there, be sure to check out the new Tiferet Talk book. It's a collection of our best interviews from the first year of Tiferet Talk Radio and is available for purchase at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other bookstores, as well as at the website. Also have a look at the special invitation from Hay House Publishers to join authors Cheryl Richardson and Reed Tracy for the Speak, Write, and Promote workshop in New York City, November 1st through November 3rd. I'd also like to thank my executive producer and Tiferet publisher, Donna Bear Stein, producer and Tiferet associate editor, R.J. Jeffries, contributing editor and assistant producer, Udo Hintz, and Michelle Mangan for their work every month in helping the show to run smoothly. Our next interview will be November 25th from 7 to 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Rick Hansen. We hope you'll join us then, and in the meantime, we wish you peace, love, happiness, 
and fulfilling work. 